Yoga, offering a variety of massage modalities as well as preferred provider oncology massage sessions. Appointment scheduling at 469-0059 or wellspringmassagetherapy.org. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Feel like escaping every once in a while? Join me, Fritz Homans, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4 at the Blues Station. We'll shuffle out of town on track 145 and explore the well-known and not-so-well-known blues artists from coast to coast. Good blues is more than just playing notes, and we'll explore those artists who understand that concept and who play with their soul and their passion. You can count on a good escape on Wednesday afternoons Lots of good insight into the artists who are bringing us the best of the blues and their music. All aboard for the Blues Station. That's every Wednesday from 2 to 4, right here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and all over the world, online at WERU.org. It's 10 o'clock and it's time for Healthy Options. Good morning. Hello, I'm Rhonda Feynman. And on today's program on Healthy Options, we'll get an update on an important subject, something that we have discussed previously, but it is always timely. And um, that is Lyme disease, ticks, Lyme disease, co-infections, prevention, treatment, all of that sort of thing. And our guests today are Beatrice Santier, Dr. Santier, Constance Happy Dickey, RN, and they're here with us today to review new information and discuss current thoughts on dealing with ticks and Lyme. Dr. Santier is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, a member of the American College of Physicians, and she's a board certified in internal medicine and pediatrics. And Dr. Santier came to Maine through the National Health Service Corp. And for the many years, the past many years, she has spent thousands of hours I think we can say that, investigating Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders. She currently participates on the State of Maine Vector-Borne Disease Work Group, is also a member of the Maine Medical Association and the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, ILADS. She also has lectured on Lyme disease quite regularly around the state of Maine, and she talks about related tick-borne disorders to professional and community groups throughout New England. And she's given testimony and has been involved in the state legislative process concerning Lyme disease. Constance Happy Dickey is a registered nurse from Hamden, Maine. She worked at Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor for 25 years and since 1999 has been had a special interest in Lyme and related diseases, and has also spent many, many hours and time and energy researching tick-borne illnesses. Happy was on the board of directors of ILADS, the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, from 2001 to 2007. She facilitates support groups for people with Lyme, both in person in Maine and online, and she's an advocate for patients with Lyme disease. She's traveled extensively with Dr. Santier, educating medical personnel and the public about Lyme disease. Happy Dickey is a founding member and board member of Maine Lyme, a nonprofit group dedicated to awareness and prevention through education and advocacy. And I want to welcome you both back to Healthy Options and WERU. Thank you, Dr. Beatrice Santier and Happy Dickey. We're glad you could be here today. Good to be here, Rhonda. There you go. Thanks for having us. Yeah, well, it's a big year, I think. I'm noticing a lot more... uh, Ticks or tick-related illnesses, or is that just um, my practice? What What are you noticing around the state? Well, there's no question that the numbers are up. Certainly for 2014, once again, um, an increase in cases, not a dramatic increase. And although there was kind of a slow start this spring, um, of course, it took us a really long time to thaw out. Um, that has changed in the last few weeks. There's There's been, pardon the expression, an uptick <laughs> in the number of cases and the number of folks being seen with, with ticks. And in some places um, uh, where we haven't seen so many in the past, there seems to be 
uh, more activity. Where, where is that? Well, I'm thinking my hometown. Really? Yeah, uh, several people already this year. That's uh, in Lincoln? In Lincoln have contacted me, and um, that would be a little unusual. Some of the surrounding areas have seen uh, quite a lot of activity, but Lincoln itself has not been exactly a hotbed. Um, but we're seeing that swell. So that's anecdotal. We'll see how that proves out at the end of the season. But, All right. Yeah. So um, some other changes, What anything we should know about that's that's different in Maine? Any other, dis- any other diseases? Any other diseases? Co- <laughs> any other co-infections? Well, we could, well, we'll get into all that. But uh, Funny you should ask. Funny, yes. Um, since the last time we were here, there really have been a few things that have changed, um, certainly in terms of the other infectors that are carried in these ticks. We've talked about Babesia before, and that has been a steadily increasing number of uh, confirmable infections in Maine. Anaplasma has doubled every year for the last two or three years. So um, that's a white blood cell infector carried by the same ticks. Uh, it's interesting in that it is probably transmitted um, more rapidly than the agent that that causes Lyme, than Borrelia burgdorferi. So it has its own um, worrisome features. And is that still, is that a bacteria or that one is a bacteria? It is a bacteria. It's a white blood cell. I call it a parasite because it has to live inside white blood cells. Um, dogs get it as well. So dogs turn out to be very good sentinel animals. And, uh, that means carriers. Ca- well, they, if more dogs are being found to have it, we can be very certain oh, that there are more humans who are going to be having it. And mm-hmm. the human cases are increasing and dog cases are increasing as well. Um, what it looks like is fever, uh, sweats, headache, summer flu. So summer flu is a big deal. You should pay attention if you have the flu in the summer. Don't assume it's a virus. Remember what you've been doing, what you may have been exposed to, and let your healthcare providers know that you have this. Um, in the laboratory evaluation for anaplasma, we often find a low white blood cell count and possibly low platelet count and um, sometimes elevated liver function tests. So there are things that will tip us off that that's what's bothering you. The good news is the antibiotic most commonly used for Lyme is also the antibiotic most commonly used for anaplasma. That's doxycycline, and it works very well. But it needs, needs treatment if you have it. So. so are there other antibiotics? Some people can't take doxy. Um, there, there are others. Uh, you know, we won't get into specifics, but mm-hmm. suffice it to say, summer flu needs some attention. Don't mm-hmm. just assume it's a virus. Mm-hmm. The other, there are other viruses that we're finding in the ticks that carry Lyme. Um, I think probably everyone had heard of the um, case of Powassan virus that was transmitted yes. by a deer tick. Typically, yes. in our state, in the cases we've had in the past, Powassan was transmitted by the look-alike tick, uh, the woodchuck tick, Ixodes kukii. Um, this is a different strain of Powassan, but equally um, bad for us. Uh, Powassan carries a 10% mortality with it and about a 50% um, neurologic injury after infection. So it, it's a bad virus. We don't have a treatment for it. The treatment is supportive if you have it. I believe that uh, since it travels in the same ticks as those that carry Lyme, it's not unusual for it to be in the presence of a Lyme infection as well. So it can be a big deal. And What, and are, what are the symptoms for that? Yeah. Very similar, similar. symptoms. It, you know, it's, it's flu-like symptoms, including some neurologic stuff. People have what's called encephalopathy with that. Their thinking is muddled. Um, people can have seizures. Um, so if it if it gets to a bad stage, it is a neurologically devastating illness. Do so, um, so we don't have a, a cure for that, but are there tests? I mean, are there ways to, to yes. know? Yes, if certainly if it's suspected, we can send off tests for it. Um, uh, I think still it has to go to na- uh, federal CDC. The Rocky Mountain Labs, I think, are still where we do that. Although I'm not I'm not certain that's true, but. If it's suspected, um, people know where to send these tests. It's it, but it is a virus, and sometimes we find it looking for other 
viruses that are problematic. You know, some viruses are all... Let's not forget mosquitoes. I know you guys now know ticks are not your friend. Um, mosquitoes aren't your friends either. Oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> well, but we many never liked the them, but now it's a... Well, many of the things we do to protect ourselves against ticks will also protect us from mosquitoes. So are you saying that mosquitoes are carrying... Uh, some viruses, not specifically virus. Powassan, but West Nile virus, Eastern Equinoencephalitis oh, yes. virus. So those other viruses, right. generally speaking, oh, those. The, you know, those oh, viruses. Those. Yes. We haven't seen a lot of human cases in Maine, but that we see any and that we follow these viruses in their animal uh, hosts, it tells us that, you know, life is changing. Things have changed. We are finding and tracking these viruses. It's important to pay attention Generally speaking, around viral things, um, early morning and dusk. So dawn and dusk mosquitoes are the ones we most worry about. For uh, Why is that? Because there are more of them? or Those no? are just the species that tend to transmit these viruses. Oh, they're more active at that time yeah. of day. And, oh. and, and the, the specific species that transmit to humans are those that are active at those times. You know, some mosquitoes are active in the in the midday, but yeah. these are more worrisome. And generally speaking also, it is later in the summer that this becomes more an issue um, because those are the mosquitoes active then and those are the mosquitoes that might likely carry it. So late summer and into the fall, which means um, protecting yourself at football games, for, you know, that are happening in the fall, those kinds of things, till we get a good freeze and lose those bad actors. Well, considering winter lasts forever, we, we shouldn't have a problem anymore. It, once it starts. Sorry, I'm, I'm being a skeptic. I'm uh, really terrible. Once winter starts, we're, we're in better shape for, for those guys, at least. Not not so much for ticks. Ticks are still... You know, yeah. Let's talk about that, because people have an idea that somehow you're safe. Yeah, temperatures above freezing, ticks become active. So, And there are more days like that, even in the winter. It used to be that we had a few months where there were no cases of Lyme reported. That does not happen anymore. Every month of the year, we have cases of Lyme disease reported. So, Yes. I think you should talk about myomotoid as well before oh, we leave before this we part leave of the other infectors <laughs> discussion. Uh, another bacteria since last we were here um, has been identified in the same ticks that carry Lyme, so the black-legged tick or deer tick in the state of Maine. Um, Borrelia myomotoi, great name. Turns out uh, it is an, uh, an illness that looks very much like Lyme. It's, um, it's related to relapsing fever, Borrelia, kind of fun. Um, and perhaps one of the important things about it is that um, it won't test positive on Lyme tests. So you may have an illness that looks very much like Lyme disease. You may or may not recall that you had a tick attachment. You know, most people who get Lyme really don't remember the tick. But you will not test positive on tests. You know, even hmm. you won't test positive. But it you'll is, be sick. But you may be quite quite ill with myomotoid. The, fee, the fever and the chills? Or? Fever, chills, flu-like symptoms, um, achy, headache, all of those things. And some serious neurologic complications have been described with myomotoy as well. Some of the earliest uh, case reports involved people who had, again, that encephalopathy or encephalitis. So uh, brain inflammation with um, problems with your information processing, with memory, with um, comprehension. So it, it's, it can be equally distressing and at this point, um, more challenging to diagnose. So we have more things to distinguish. We don't know how prevalent it is in the state of Maine, um, although there is a little research being done to look at that. Uh, the Maine Medical Center Lyme Research Group uh, did some zero surveys to take a look at um, the frequency in people who have had tick exposure. And I, I guess uh, the preliminary data was a little frightening when the, it was reviewed. It came to something more like, was it 10%? It was a lower percentage. It doesn't matter what the percentage is. The point is that it is here, mm -hmm. probably not in as high a percentage as the infector uh, that causes Lyme. But, um, but, but 
uncovering more things in these these texts. If you have just tuned in, by the way, um, this is WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman. And today we're speaking with Dr. B. Santier and Constance Happy Dickey about ticks, Lyme disease, and many co-infections, it seems like. Now, um, the uh, myomotoid, yes. do you treat that with toxi as well, or Bactrim, or uh, any of those? Pretty much the antibiotics that work for Lyme mm-hmm. appear to work for myomotoid as well, so okay. that's the good news. The good news okay. is treating treats. Okay, so. okay. So let's talk again, I guess, the, the best way to not have to deal with any of this is prevention. And I am, I am always amazed how many times we've had this conversation, how many times we talk about it, and that people are still not getting the, the tick check thing. And I don't know how to stress that enough, but maybe you do. Go ahead. You know, lifestyle changes are the hardest things to accomplish. That's yeah. true across the board. And that's no less true in this circumstance. But the level best thing we can do in terms of of Lyme is prevent it. And um, so you can avoid tick-infested areas. Sometimes that's impossible to do. So the next best thing would be uh, be aware that you may be in tick territory. Uh, Light-colored clothes, they're dark-colored ticks, so you may spot them more easily. And tuck your shirt into your pants, your pants into your socks, Um, And you create a barrier from the ground to your wrist. And that's useful because ticks crawl. They don't hop, they don't fly, and they crawl up. So if you create that barrier, you've made a a dent in the likelihood that they can get to your skin. If you take that a step further and treat those clothes with permethrin, permethrin is um, a chrysanthemum-derived chemical. And um, on skin, it's perfectly useless. But on fabric, it's really excellent. If it dries into the fabric and ticks or mosquitoes get on it, they die. So very useful. And that creates maybe the best possible uh, keep the ticks off you situation. It gives you very little area that you need to apply any kind of um, repellent. And repellents are part of the, uh, is there the a, program. Is there a percentage or is there a promethium that we are looking for? And how? I mean, it, it's amazing that we talk about... Um, these kinds of things with great encouragement these days <laughs> when know. you think, what else is that affecting? But, um, well, you know. The good news is we have the, the enzyme that breaks down permethrin, and so do most of the creatures we know. Cats do not. So when, in its wet form, it's toxic to cats. It's also toxic to fish in its wet form. So. Oh. So you want it to dry in. Uh, alternatively, you can purchase clothing that's permethrin treated. Insect Shield doesn't offer us any uh, compensation for this, but Insect Shield is a company that has uh, a line of clothing that is treated with permethrin. Um, so you can buy clothes or blankets or sleeping bags or other things already. I don't know if you can buy sleeping bags already treated. They're getting more and more products all the time, um, and those products are are less the Permethrin lasts through um, 70 washings or more. And I recently read that um, after 19 years, 95% of the product was still in the fabric. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't leak out or, you know, get on. It doesn't wear away um, with washing or wearing. So, so what are the percentages we're talking about? Do we do we know? For permethrin, it's I think zero point five percent, but it's only it's all that's on the market. You don't have, really have to pay attention to that. Oh. It's the repellents that you have to pay attention to the percentages. And what does that mean? And for DEET, it's twenty three to about thirty five percent is effective. Anything over fifty percent is not more effective, and it could be more toxic. Um, for Picaridin, which is also effective, it's 20%. And for um, another product called IR3535, which is found in Avon Bagard Plus Expedition, also in other products now on the market. Coleman has one now that's IR3535. That was studied at 15%, but now I think we're finding it at 20%. Okay. So 
Wow. So you put these on, well, those would you put on, on you or your those clothes? Those are repellents for your skin. But the Promethean you put on your clothing. clothing. And I yeah. know I've heard of people having the big tub and yeah, you the, can, putting the concentration in the water and, and you, then drying everything. You can do that. You can spray or you can dip or you can send to insect shield your clothing. Oh. And it, if you, especially I, I recommend for people who have uniforms or things that they absolutely wear all the time um, in tick environments, tick infested environments, you can send them away for $10 an item. Or um, there are some, a couple other products that I've I've really started recommending for people are, are the blankets that Insect Shield has. You can put those on your couch if you have animals that get on your couch and it, it kills ticks that they bring into the house. You can use it in your car if you're taking your animals in the car. If you're going on a picnic with your kids, you put that on the ground and that offers you a level of protection. It's a whole new world. Um, yes, exactly. But it's... it's let's, let's let everyone just take a moment and, <laughs> and, and breathe into this new reality. Go ahead, Exactly. Nancy, I didn't mean to... Um, one product I just purchased and tested I'm pretty excited about for animals um, is a tick vest for our dog. It was by a company, a local main company in Kingfield. It's called Dog Be Gone. They They first did fluorescent vests to keep track of your pets, horses, down to dogs. Um, they now have permethrin impregnated vests for your dog. Mm. We use it um, on our dog at our place on the coast and just this weekend I looked down and there was a tick crawling up my leg and I picked it up and put it in a bag and within an hour it was dead. I'm pretty sure it came in on the dog wow. with his vest and it killed the tick. Oh my. So, so yes, and again, we there is no... Uh, uh, you're not spokespeople no. for these companies. No, but yeah, I think really we should think hired. about that. <laughs> right. No a conflict of interest no, here no. that we need to uh, to uh, Just inform people. Exciting new um, things yes. that people can do because for so long people haven't had things right. that they could do. So that kind of awareness, the tick awareness, and I think the tick check. Let's talk about the tick check because – you know, we want to go hiking. We, we live in Maine we, or wherever. We want to be out in, in the world. And I'm noticing in my own behavior, I'm, I'm a hiker, but I have to think about it. Am I willing? Am I ready? Am I up for it? It used to be, let's go. And now it's, okay, if I go, I have to do this, this, and this. And then, the t- and then you know, am I going to be home in time to get the shower and to do this right, right away? And it becomes a really conscious decision, today we're going to go do this. And then there are people who live outside all the time, um, bare feet, you know, gardening and doing all of that. So let's talk about the consciousness of what what is a good tick check? Because uh, I'm surprised that so many people have forgotten. Well, denial is not a river (laughs) river in Egypt is, is what we always say. It's hard to change, but if you did nothing else and did this, I would be pretty happy. I like permethrin a lot, but I'd still be pretty happy if at the end of your day, you did a full body naked tick check. Every day. Every day, because especially this time of year, the tick um, stage that's active is the nymphal tick, and that tick is about the size of a poppy seed. And we're in June right now. Yes. So. But this will be archived, but we're talking yeah. a June, a June, spring, June. That's right. With question marks. So May, June, July, probably into the 1st of August uh, at least, uh, the nymphal tick is most active. And it's going to be difficult to see. It's, you know, it's a freckle. And so if you're just looking to see this, you may miss it. So I encourage that you look and feel everywhere. And so full body naked tick check, check the scalp, behind the ears, the neck, uh, in the armpits, uh, under the bra line, at the waist, um, in the groin, behind the knees, the places that I call the hot spots. Because when ticks are crawling on us, what they're looking for is a spot to get a good blood meal. They're being good animals. They're not doing something uh, sinister. It turns out sinister for us, but it's it's they're being good animals. So you have to carefully look and feel. Now, whether you take a shower to do this or not, um, there was a paper that was reported that said that 
gives you a, a better opportunity to find the ticks, maybe because you're scrubbing, maybe because the heat of the shower sensitizes your hands a little bit so that you feel it better. If you feel a bump, you know, you've got to do this every day because you've got to learn what bumps belong to you <laughs> so that if you feel a new bump, uh, if you can't see it, have somebody look and see if that bump has legs. If it has legs, try not to panic. You have some time. Um, when the tick first starts to feed, usually the bacteria is in the midgut of the tick. And as it feeds, it uh, multiplies and gets from the midgut into ticky circulation and up into the salivary glands. So the way the tick feeds is it sucks a little, spits a little, and gradually it can transmit that infection through the wound. How much time do you have? That's everybody's question. Um, we don't know. Uh, generally speaking, you have more than a few hours if you have a very nice tick removal. So it used to be said that unless a tick was feeding for 72 hours, no, uh, no transmission occurred. Well, that's absolutely not true. Um, at 72 hours, if the tick is carrying infection, it has transmitted it. So then we went to 48 hours, and then we went to 36 hours, and the current uh, wisdom is that it's 24 hours. But the real wisdom is that at the longer the tick is attached, the greater the likelihood it has transmitted infection if it's carrying it. And there is no length of time that is absolutely safe. We know that even short-duration attachments are sometimes um, infectious. As little as four hours I've seen in my own experiences. That has usually been when um, the removal was what I call complicated. Either the tick broke or you in some way annoyed the tick and caused it to regurgitate into the wound or some other thing has happened. But uh, there, are, there are currently papers and reviews that demonstrate that short-duration attachments can be responsible for tick-borne uh, tick disease transmission. So do this carefully every day and remove the tick well. Uh, fine nose tweezers as close to the skin as possible using steady, gentle pressure straight out. Don't twist it. Don't annoy it. If don't not, annoy don't the annoy tick. the tick. Don't and annoy. Let's say it again. Do don't not annoy the, the tick. tick. Very sensitive little yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, tick scoops work as well. The tick scoops are like these teaspoons. I with have a not V-notch. seen those work, but that's just personal experience. Maybe others have better technique. It can be hard. Um, yeah. It's all. Mm-hmm. All of it is finding what works for you. Right. And you just you know slide it along the skin, and theoretically you end up with a tick in the notch. So, theoretically. Theoretically, wash your hands, wash the side of the bite, wash whatever instrument you used, and save the tick in a plastic bag. Save the tick. Save the tick because we want to identify it. Um, you know, all ticks can carry some diseases. Not all ticks carry Lyme and, and this list. Um, no tick is your friend. Repetitively feeding blood-sucking parasites that feed on rodents. It's real simple. So no tick is your friend. Well, that's totally appetizing. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. But to- really, don't hold back. We want to know the <laughs> truth. Those blood-sucking. I w- now, they love, they love deer. Right. So deer is is where it's all happening. I, I always think of a deer as having a little cocktail party. <laughs> little the, the ticks are drinking little umbrella, you know, they have little umbrella drinks, you know. Hey, that's where it's happening. Well, What's happening? <laughs> well, deer are an important part of the life cycle of these ticks. Um interestingly, they don't get sick. They don't get Lyme disease. Good news for the deer. But uh the adult tick would actually prefer to feed on a deer if it could because it would allow it to feed to repletion. It'll be fully engorged, and then it mates. So ticks will mate on the deer. It's the singles bar. (laughs) You'll never look at deer the same way again. Just think about those little ticks, you know, the singles bar, right right out there in the woods. Well, it's a mobile singles bar, so you've got to think about that too (laughs) because where that deer then lays down is where those satiated and pregnant ticks drop <laughs> off and um, lay their clutch of 3,000 eggs. So two to 3,000 eggs at a time. Really? You don't want those in your backyard. <laughs> well, and how often do they do this? They, they lay eggs. How many, what's the cycle? It's a two-year life cycle, and, you know, each, each female tick does this once and then dies. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. 
There are there a lot of ticks there, a lot of eggs. So they're little, they're eggs, and then they the egg then will they then the hatch into the larva. Larva in the spring, and those are not. We don't know. Well, the the literature. Yes. <laughs> the happy is shaking her <laughs> well, head. We do sort we, of. We know, know some go. <laughs> no. no. Well, the literature would tell us that um, the larvae are not infected with Borrelia burgdorferi. I mean, there's there's limited studies, but. So far, the literature says that. Now, Willie Bergdorfer, on the other hand, says, or said, said of blessed, of blessed memory, memory. <laughs> said that about 2% of the time, if the female adult was infected, she would transmit to her eggs roughly 2%. Um, it's not in the literature, I can't say. But I think he was a pretty reliable source. So maybe zero, maybe a very small percentage. Interestingly, Borrelia myomotoi, on the other hand, about 20% infectivity of eggs born to an infected female. So that's, that's a whole new ballgame. The good news about larvae is that they are so small that the likelihood that they're going to feed on humans is low. Okay. They are more likely to feed on very small animals, say, for example, a white-footed mouse. Ah, ah. the famous white-footed mouse. White-footed mouse. And white-footed mice are very competent um, hosts and very excellent at harboring the infection through their whole lifespan so that if a larva or a nymph feeds on a white-footed mouse that is infected, that's how it acquires the infection. And then in subsequent feedings, once a tick's infected, it's always infected. So in subsequent feedings, it can transmit that Wait, infection. So the, the tick can get the Lime from the mouse. That's precisely how it goes. The mouse is the um, bacterial reservoir I read this morning. <laughs> the bacterial <laughs> reservoir. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So it's it's a complicated life cycle, and it involves lots of uh, lots of features in the ecology and biology of these animals. So keep the grass low by your house. What else can we do? Buy guinea hens? I don't know. <laughs> Some people buy guinea hens, um, and they're thought to eat the larger ticks, but not so sure that they're eating the uh, larvae and the nymphs. And the nymphs. Um, their eyesight is apparently not so good. Um, but, you know, if you're keeping part of the tick population down, I guess that's helpful. It's mm -hmm. not foolproof by any means. Um, uh, other things you can do in your yard are to keep your grass mowed um, short, keep it dry. The ticks don't survive in dry environments. They like a certain amount of moisture. So you want to remove the leaf litter from around your house, the bushes. Um, you want to move wood piles out away from the house because wood piles are condos for rodents, um, which are our bacterial reservoirs. And um, you want to not feed birds near the house. I know, shocking. I'm shocked. Um, okay. Well, how close is close? Well, you would just have to be aware that birds are mass transit for right. ticks. Um, That's right. And if you set the feeder up, especially if it's in your play yard, oh. um, you set the feeder up, the birds come in with ticks on them, they drop food um, to the ground, the rodents come to eat the food at the bottom of the bird feeder, um, the ticks, you know, get reinfected or new ticks um, get infected. So, you know, if you have to feed the birds, then you have to be aware of, you know, the environment that you're setting up in your own yard. Um, when it comes to swing sets, play yards, you want them away from the edge of the forest. It's the interface between the lawn and the forest where the most ticks are, where it's most dangerous. So you want the the swing set in the middle of the yard um, where it's warm and dry. And you, you want to be some careful about which plants you're planting in your yard. We know that pachysandra, which is nice ground cover and people like it quite a bit, increases the likelihood that you'll get Lyme disease, what, 40-fold? Because? Because it's a moist, lush oh. cover. It's so ticks natural. Like it there. Ticks like it. Natural habitat. Yeah. Get rid of your lawns, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, you know, Maine is not a lawny well, place. That's well, that's kind of you, that's human well, you can edge your yard too. If you put mm -hmm. a three foot rim around your yard between you and the edge of the woods, um, crushed rock, mulch, stone, uh, wood chips, something that is dry, that also changes the um, 
habitat. It makes a greater tick-free zone or at least tick-reduced zone in your yard because they have to travel across. So if you are going to be using grass, is there anything you all recommend or for another company that you're not <laughs> affiliated well, you, with? You can have um, tick-killing agents spread in your yard um, if you if you have a huge problem or, you know, if you want to do that. But um, it's always recommended to have a professional come and assess your yard and, and let you know how to how they would properly um, spread that because timing and, yes, and who, humidity, rain, that kind of thing affects yeah. how you put that stuff down. And you don't want it to go into the watershed. And no, you definitely don't. There are areas don't. that yeah. you can't use that. Yeah. There are organic preparations that can be used for that. They tend not to last very long and need to be reapplied pretty often. Mm. If you have just tuned in, we are speaking with Dr. B. Santier and Constance Happy Dickey, who is a nurse. We're talking about Lyme disease and ticks and co-infections. And you are tuned to WERU Community Radio. This is Healthy Options, and I'm Rhonda Feynman. And um, we are going to continue our conversation here now that we're thinking about, I I don't know about you, but I'm itching. (laughs) I feel very creepy crawly. Maybe those at home do too. Just take a breath. Yeah. Lots of information. You, but it's not inevitable that you will get Lyme no. or any of these things. Now, I have um, have worked with, um, I think, from, through uh, some of the advice you've given about some of the labs at Amherst in Massachusetts where they will test your tick for a variety of co-infections and for Lyme. And they're doing it. It's actually gotten cheaper. Yeah. Like, now, they, they really have this down to a science. I don't know if they do other, other little critters, like bed bugs or something, but we'll find out. But anyway, um, often what I'll do in my, in my practice is I have a number of herbs that are really helpful. Um, I think there are other practitioners would as well to, to kind of work with the immune system and work with actual bacteria and spirochetes. I want to talk about there's a confusion about what's the bacteria, what's a spirochete, how do, how do we talk about that? But anyway, but then if people who I do recommend save the tick, you send it to them, and then you can see. So while you're doing something, you can see, and then you can d- make a decision. Now, is that a wise uh, practice, or what, what do you start right away, or what, what's, what's the trick? Yeah. We don't have a great answer to this question. Right. I'm so glad you asked it. <laughs> of course. Um, because we, we don't know what the right answer is. People often would like to know what's in the tick that was attached to them. You know, and uh, well, so... if you don't need to do antibiotics, you know, it, no. it is still something to consider. Absolutely. So I think that's, I think that's some of that reasoning, yep. you know. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And we've found that the lab at Amherst does a, a good job, and they are. They're testing for four infectors now. They use PCR. Now, PCR is testing for the DNA of a given uh, organism. And testing in our blood for that while if it turned up a positive result would be very helpful, it's often negative because um, if you look at the blood volume compared to the volume we're testing, it's just hard to find it. Needle in a haystack. However, mm-hmm. for ticks, you're testing the whole organism. Right. So you can know it's a, it's a sensitive test if we do the whole organism. And they test it for Borrelia burgdorferi, the spirochete that causes Lyme. They test for anaplasma. They test for Babesia. And they're testing for Borrelia myomotoi. Very interesting, all for the same same fee. Again, these guys aren't paying us either. <laughs> but um, they do a nice job of that. Now, so if you send your tick off, you can know probably within about a week yes. whether it was infected. And so the good news about that, if you get a negative result and you feel fine, you might feel very good about either stopping an antibiotic you started mm. or not taking one. However, if it tests negative and you're sick... Yes. You now have a dilemma. Right. So maybe that dilemma is that that wasn't the tick that made you sick or maybe you have a different illness. So people just need to be a little cautious about what they do with the result if they decide to get that result. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if you send the tick off and um, the tick is positive and you're not sick, you have to decide what you're going to do with that information too. And that may be based on how long the tick was attached, um, uh, maybe you'll feel safer to treat than not treat. 
the decision-making is difficult. Some folks uh, are recommending a single dose of doxycycline uh, for tick bite, and it's based on a study, and it is one of the recommendations in the Infectious Diseases Society of America's clinical guidelines in a very specific circumstance, a tick that's attached uh, that shows obvious engorgement, uh, nymphal or adult tick, and treatment can be started within 72 hours. Um, unfortunately, I, I think that besides not making microbiologic sense, because this is a slow-growing bacteria, um, and so a single dose of, a, of an agent just doesn't seem sensible to its, its treatment, there are some studies that may support it because of its effect on other organisms, but they don't directly apply. And when someone else reviewed the data, uh, they felt that although it was reported as an 80 percent efficacy, if you didn't consider only those people who developed a rash, and developing a rash was the marker they used, if you considered people who also had flu-like symptoms and maybe even had seroconversion, the efficacy looked more like about 50 percent. Hmm. So I'm surprised it's that high. Really? Yeah. yeah. But... but uh, is there a downside? So, you know, a single dose of antibiotic, it's not going to cause much harm, might do some good. Is there a downside? And unfortunately, there is. That dose of antibiotic may, and they found this in the study itself, may turn off your body's antibody production. So we can give you that dose, perhaps not cure your infection, and six weeks later, when you turn up sick and we go to do testing to find out if maybe this is Lyme, you may well test negative. So there is a downside. But you do have, and, and you and still you be, would have. And still actually have the disease. So, so. In, right. So the one dose is actually very questionable in terms of long-term well, yeah, it's hard. To, yeah. It's it's just we don't have long-term data to tell us mm -hmm. that it was actually effective at preventing Lyme. Mm -hmm. The best their data really showed was that it may have prevented the development of the rash. And yeah. the rash, although if you get the rash, that that's, is that's Lyme great. disease and, and we want to treat you, you can have Lyme disease without the rash. In Maine's data, uh, in the last two years, about 56% of the confirmed cases in the state of Maine actually uh, had a rash associated. That You know, I'm kind of a simple thinker. That means that 44% did, did not. not. Now, the numbers may be higher than that. They may be lower than that. Sometimes the rash is very subtle, and people may not notice it because it's it doesn't itch, it doesn't hurt. I mean, it may. It may itch mildly. It may burn. But generally speaking, the rash has no symptoms with it. So it's easy, in my mind, to miss the rash. And so um, people either don't get it or don't notice it and still may become ill. So, so in, your, in your experience, then, are you finding that the three-week or four-week, we're, we're talking an acute case. Let's say we have just found the tick, we have a rash, or we don't have a rash, we're not sure. Yeah. Let's say the test came back. I have clients, the, the test comes back positive, they don't feel sick. But, you know, I think that's a good time, and I'm, you know, coming from me, to do, perhaps, to do the antibiotic at that point, because it's, how effective do you think the doxycycline is at that stage? We're Early on, antibiotics are very effective. Um, and what we know is if, if we treat early and aggressively, people do very well. Um, most of the time. Most of the time. Not all of the time. Right. It's conservatively estimated all comers that 10 to 20 percent go on to have late symptoms regardless of treatment. So that's not an insignificant amount. No, but Not at all. But um, that means that 80% or 90% do fine. Right. The key to all treatment from my standpoint is follow-up. Regardless of how long you choose to start the treatment for, you have to follow up and make sure that people are well, that the, what you were treating is gone. So it's not just uh, a simple, here, take your three-week course of antibiotics, we'll see you in a year. No, follow it up. Make sure that what you're treating is resolved. If we do that, then you can start with any length of treatment that you deem is appropriate. And there are different opinions about it. Um, but follow it up. Make sure people are well.
because that is our best opportunity. So um, I think the, you know, we get into the, the tricky point of view <clears throat> or controversy when people talk about chronic Lyme and yeah. people. Um, so there are a variety of antibiotics. That's one approach. Um, and for different, because you're dealing, dealing with a spirochete, which is not a bacteria, oh, yes. you're, what? Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. Okay. That's, that was the confusion yeah. that, I'm, that I'm asking for a lot of sure. people. So the spirochete is still a bacteria. It is a bacteria. But a parasite? It's a particular kind of bacteria. It, it is um, what spirochete means or spirochete is just that it's corkscrew shaped. Um, it also has little whip-like structures on it that help it to get around. And it puts that into a, a class of bacteria, that uh, some of which are very common and many of which are difficult to get rid of. So it, it just tells us something about this bacteria to know its right. shape. right. So, um, but antibiotics are effective at, at eliminating it if we use antibiotics uh, wisely and long enough. And because it does create, doesn't it create a, 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 some, an encasement that there, there's a good deal of protection? It's a very smart bacteria. It is a very smart bacteria and, and capable of existing in different forms. So it sometimes exists as that uh, corkscrew shape form. It can also exist as what's called a cell wall free form or encased in a cyst. And that makes it more difficult to get at and treat. Um, there, there's been some really elegant work done in different labs, both in the US and in Europe, looking at what are called starvation forms. So when the bacteria is in trouble, whether it's being pursued by antibiotics or in some other unsavory environment for the bacteria, it can morph its shape and continue to exist. Um, the arguments or the controversy around this comes in uh, looking at people who have persisting symptoms after what is thought to be adequate antibiotic treatment, determining whether those persisting symptoms are because of inflammation or an immune response or persisting infection and we don't have, at this point, definitive data to tell us. We do have information that tells us in many different animals, including humans, you may have persisting infection. Is that always what's causing the persisting symptoms? Probably not. There is some data that suggests that certain people with certain genetic immune makeup might have persisting inflammatory or immune responses. Proof for one is not proof against the other. All of these mechanisms may turn out to be quite true. Mm -hmm. And the real key is always to, to do your level best with each individual to individualize the care for that person to get them to the point where they return to their pre-illness health. Right. So we have a, 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 the idea of a variety of different kinds of antibiotics. We, we talked about doxycycline, but then we talk also about other kinds that would go that can get into the encasement and because people want to know yeah. I have this what do I do you know it's not theoretical at that point well yeah yeah, yeah. all yeah some would say that you know the likelihood of getting Lyme from a tick bite is very low but when it happens to you that possibility just goes right to 100 <laughs> percent so once it's once you've got it you you really do want to get rid of it rid of it. it. It's tough to talk about individual right. antibiotics because everybody really is an individual. When we talk about cyst forms, this is um, the best data that's available at this point is all in the lab. We don't have uh, excellent data or studies that tell us in real people how this is turning out. Th those are studies I long to see. I, I think we need to do them and report them. Um, but suffice it to, to say that there are things we can do. Um, although we're very good at, at treating early and getting good results, this is treatable at every stage, whether it's early or late, whether you have um, a rash or whether you are now here with arthritis or whether you're now here with brain fog and headaches and, and changed function in your life. This is a treatable illness. 
it needs careful consideration. The diagnosis of it needs to be careful. You have to look at what else could this be. You no more want someone treating you who will only see and treat Lyme than you want someone treating you who will never be able to see and treat Lyme. You want someone who's going to look at you Mm -hmm. and look at the possibilities for what is causing your illness and address all of them. Right. Are you finding uh, that that there is a different dialogue or more what we call Lyme literate doctors, whatever that means? Yeah. Uh, what, what's happening in Maine? Are you finding that there's more? Well, I think there are more and more um, clinicians who are becoming um, aware and becoming more uh, more educated about um, Lyme disease and its um, I don't know, nuances, the the controversy and, and otherwise. So more and more physicians, more and more other practitioners, really many practitioners. Yes. It's still it's still a challenge to find someone who is knowledgeable about late manifestations and persisting symptoms. Okay. That's still a challenge. Um, okay. It just is. It just is. If you just tuned in again, this is WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we're speaking with Dr. Beatrice Santier and Constance Happy Dickey, who is a nurse, and we're talking about ticks, Lyme disease, co-infections, treatments, prevention, and uh, we still have time, so we get to talk more about this. Um, I know that um, that uh, there is some... Uh, in, in Chinese medicine and in homeopathic, there are worlds of conversation about this. In one place, you talk about uh, ancient translations of old formulas talking about treating demons. And that's the, those, are the, those yeah. are the herbs. They're demon herbs, <laughs> a form of aconite and, and things that are, are put together to, to pu- push out the demons for parasites. They're called thunder pearls and right. dragon pearls. And these are – it's very old. And there's almost the idea that this has been treated forever. This is not a new disease. And I know in the homeopathic world, and I would love to, I'm putting this out, I would love to get one of these practitioners on my show, and so far no one has said yes, um, (laughs) to talk to me about uh, some of the other homeopathics, how we work um, on a different level of the immune system, especially when the... the, Bacteria is in the cis form, and it's yeah. or someone cannot tolerate antibiotics anymore. That there have been a really big problem with that. So there are other other methods in, but I think what I really want to emphasize and what we're talking about is that prevention is so important that really we don't want to have to go to that. And and for those who are suffering from from that. Um, right now, it's 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 not a, an, a a theoretical conversation. So there are options, and we want to talk about that that too. Uh, but again, I think what you said about being individualized is so important, and to be working with someone who really can understand that this different phases. Now we only have a little bit of time, but I do want to talk about testing because people talk. We talk about Western blot. We talk about these. Uh, Let's test. When what does that mean? And are people really? How do we trust these things? And what are people really learning from or from this? And which labs can we should we be uh, talking about? Uh, lab testing is an important topic because it, throughout medicine, I think we have come to over rely on the laboratory when we're making diagnoses. Not just in Lyme. I, I think it it becomes um, a habit. To, to become reliant on the laboratory, and, and the laboratory can only give us supportive data. In Lyme disease particularly, uh, the two-tiered recommended um, method of testing for this disease was actually designed for surveillance, and surveillance is tracking the trends of the disease. So what you're doing in surveillance is trying to make sure that every case is Lyme and nothing else. So that means you're looking for tests that do only and as a consequence, you're not getting tests that do all. You want to get all the cases if you're a clinician. You want to do only the cases if you're doing trends. So um, that makes them insufficiently sensitive to pick up all the cases. Um, what does that boil down to? Can you have Lyme disease and a negative test? And the answer is yes. 
if the test is done early, because we're measuring antibodies and it takes two to six weeks to develop an antibody response, you may not test positive. In fact, you almost certainly won't test positive. So early in the disease, when you have the rash, there's no need for a test and there's no use of a test. It will almost certainly be negative. Late, late disease is often accompanied by negative tests. Uh, there are changes in the antibodies. There's that midline period where people are more likely to have positive tests if they're going to test positive. On its best day, in the best hands, done in, with best methods, there's still, with the Western blot, which might be the one that gives us a better idea, at least a 20% false negative rate. You can have Lyme disease without a positive test. The guys who are most likely to test positive <laughs> are those who have a nice inflamed joint. Big swollen knee, very likely to have a positive test. That has a robust immune response, and we see that very often. Big flaming knee, positive test. Everybody else has a harder time to turn mm. up positive. So it's got to be in your toolbox, but it can't be the only thing in your toolbox. It's really the story. The story, the exam, the tests, other things that might be active. You have to consider everything. You make what's called a clinical diagnosis using all the tools that are, are available to you. How's that? That sounds very good. Okay. So what about those things we've heard about the bands? What about bands and... That's uh, the more, it's actually a more specific test, the Western blot, but it is a test that instead of doing an automated look is hand done and it looks at each individual reaction that we call bands. What the bands represent are proteins on the surface of this bacteria that your body has produced antibodies against. And not just that it's produced it against, but that you have extra floating around that aren't busy fighting the infection. To, to be measured. So those bands, some of them are more specific for this um, bacteria. Some of them are more general to all classes of spirochetes. Some are more general to all classes of bacteria. But to meet CDC criteria, you have to have 5 out of 10 on your late-acting um, immune globulin, IgG, um, or 2 out of 3 of the early fighter, IgM. But in fact, there are, you know, a lot of different proteins that your body is going to have the potential to make response to. So it's best to have all of those proteins reported to you so you can look and make some judgment about whether the, you have specific reactions and whether it supports what you have already determined with your provider clinically. Does it look like, act like, smell like this is probably Lyme? Do we have support for it? in the lab, whether it meets criteria to be a reportable test or not. Or not. And, and that's what we're looking for. We, we just want to identify people who are unwell, try to identify if this is why they're unwell, and try to make them better. Mm -hmm. So if people are going to their physician and they've just had the tick, no, no, don't do the test. Not really. It, if you have a rash, you get treated for Lyme immediately. Right. If and, you don't and you're sick... Get treated. Yeah. And and if you have tick in hand, some people would suggest you, you could draw blood now, draw blood in six weeks, and then run them together and see if there's an increase uh -huh. in the reactivity mm -hmm. over that time period. Um, it may not be a good use of money. Sometimes you'll wish you had done that. It's <laughs> a very tough call. So here we are with the great prevention and... Um, and also an idea of uh, all the con the ramifications of treatment. There's a lot more to talk about. Sure. And I want to uh, thank you. Um, I know that there's some, what, mainlime.org is a really great informational place. And he, we'll get some other things on the archive, something about some of the tests, hygienics. What, are we still using Stony Brook? Stony Brook does a good job. We'll get that um, on there. Dedicated labs. You it's can good. ask your, your doctor. And I do encourage people to get treatment, work with someone because there's a lot of nuance to, to this. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think we're running out of time, but we are tuned to community radio. And I want to thank um, B. Santier. I want to thank Happy Dickey uh, for joining us today, having a great conversation about Lyme, prevention, ticks, co-infections, everything you can think of. 
and we have to have more conversation about treatment and all of that kind of thing, but we'll get to that. Um, if you missed any of the show, by the way, it will be archived on weru.org, and it does stream for the next two weeks, so you can just go to the uh, live streaming. And um, once again, is there any other numbers, any other ways to reach people that we should know about? Or? Um, our Facebook page is pretty yes. active. Oh, well, yeah. Lots of, so, so Main Lime Nonprofit Facebook page. So what's the name fun. of it? Main Lime Nonprofit. Okay. We'll have this all on the archives as well. Uh, once again, thank you, Dr. Santier, B. Santier. Thank you, Happy Dickie. I am Rhonda Feynman, and I want to thank you. Um, yeah. Um, thanks to John Greenman, I believe, uh, for engineering. Thanks for Petra Hall for her uh, production assistance, co-production assistance. And I'm Rhonda Feynman. I'm wishing you the best of health. Support for WERU comes from Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information, publishing three weekly newspapers, The Weekly Packet, Island Advantages, and The Casting Patriot, as well as The Bay Community Register, The Summer Seasonal Guide, and more. Also on the web at penobscotbaypress.com. Support for WERU also comes from Belfast Family Planning and Primary Care, now offering comprehensive primary health care